0: Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Bewitched by the lie of acquisition and consumerism, we have become a society of people whose actions proclaim the vulgar creed, me first. With supposed possessions in hand, we emerge as a nation of cowards, so terrified of losing what we think we have that we elevate our cravenness with ugly platitudes. Family first, religion first, and nation first. In our cowardice, we run afoul of the Lord's warning in Matthew. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life, for my sake, will find it. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, verses 32 to 39. You're listening to the Bible as Literature.
1: Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos and this is Dr. Richard Benton.
0: And you are listening to episode 284 of the Bible as Literature podcast. So we've been talking, Richard, about fear, about how each person has to make a decision about who they fear, what law they fear, which master and therefore which household rule they fear, and that fear will determine how they conduct themselves and what they do. And in this case, the disciples are being challenged to preach. But with the proclamation of this fear, which comes jointly with the warning not to fear Caesar, not to fear what men will do to you, comes the test of what you actually say, what do you confess? Because the interesting thing about fearing God is that he may not come to your aid when you stand before Caesar. And if that's the case, just as the three youths stood before Nebuchadnezzar, if that's the case, are you going to confess him as the three youths did, or are you going to tuck tail and run?
1: You know, when you're five years old and six years old, you think that your father is the most powerful man in the universe because he's able to bring order to your household to bring that completeness that shalom to the house the same way that he's able to punish you and bring you back into line and back into order for the sake of the household he's able to do it with the rest of the house it's nice when your dad puts a stop to nonsense because it keeps you yourself from straying too far into nonsense recognizing that is wisdom. Knowing that the wisdom of God is stronger than your wisdom, you know that if you follow him, it's better than following your own ego, and you know that inherently. Why would you go after some other master? Why would you go after some other god? Why would you go after some other king? It makes no sense logically. We know that there's this one wisdom. So just teach about this God, and you've done your job. And you do it
0: until you die. Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. You would not have an admonition against betraying the teaching, betraying the name of the Lord. Remember, it's a name that should be feared not Caesar, or to borrow from J.K. Rowling, not Voldemort, say his name, you shouldn't fear it, but it's the name of the Lord that you should fear. It's the name of the Lord that is not spoken aloud when you read Torah in the assembly. If Matthew has to tell you to confess and to fear that name and not to deny that name, that means that people were denying it and people were not confessing it. So I want to stress this point that what's intuitive for the human being is to bow to Caesar when you bow, not to bow to the cross when you bow to Caesar. It's a subtle point I was discussing with a colleague this week, but an important one.
1: And one of the important phrases here is before men, before human beings. This links so well with chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, because Jesus is drawing a stark line. Between following God's Torah alone, fearing God alone, and respecting God alone, and being obedient to God alone, and ignoring what human beings would demand of you, ignoring it, paying no attention to it, your only priority, not even your first priority, is doing what God wants. So you pray, but you make sure that no human being sees you. Here, when you deny Jesus before human beings, you're trying to curry their favor. You're trying to get them to do what you want. You're trying to use their power to save your own life. You're not allowed to do that. Your life is in the hand of God, and you are to stand out of the way to allow God to do with your life whatever he wants. It is not your job to preserve your life, because you can't. It only goes to a certain point and we don't get to choose which day that is so make sure that you are only teaching what jesus has taught you that's all you're allowed to do
0: one of the problems with the translation of verse 33 is the rendering of the plural tis uranis, as the singular in english because it mutes and tamps down the level of risk you take when you confess the Father of Jesus. Because when you say in heaven, in our platonic brain, we think of a physical place. We project some kind of place that you can go to, a locality. But when you say, tu patros mutu entis uranis, you're talking about his father, my father, the Father of Jesus, who is in the heavens. And in Matthew If something is in the heavens, it's something you can't reach, you can't touch, you can't pin down, like the treasure in Matthew that you're called to value. It's in the heavens. How can you have treasure in the heavens in a worldly sense? So the power of the Father of Jesus that we are called to fear is a different kind of power. I can't stress this enough, and if that's the case if it's a power that appears to the human being as a kind of emptiness or vanity or oblivion, then you really are taking a risk when you profess his name before Caesar. It's easy for Christians to give lip service to this type of confession where you profess loyalty, but it's an entirely different thing when you're facing torture or execution. It's not such a sure or intuitive thing. And remember that Scripture is addressed to those who are under the boot of tyranny. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And this, of course, is the threat. Verse 34 is the true face of God. He is the God who sends Caesar to persecute you who sends Paul, the one who persecuted you, to evangelize you with the biblical teaching. This is the God who sent you into exile because you forsook his instruction. So there are consequences for not confessing his name. There are consequences for not remaining faithful to his instruction and walking according to his precepts, and he wants you to know that when he brings the sword, it is truly he who brings the sword because of your infidelity. It's a threat. It's very powerful, especially when you consider the prophetic context of this statement.
1: Speaking from that prophetic context is essential because whenever people are wielding the sword, it's the sword of God. But whenever people are having the sword applied to them, let's say, It's evil and it's not God. People are fickle this way. In fighting the American Revolution, we can say God hath loosed the lightning of his terrible swift sword when it's killing the British soldiers, of course. But if the British are killing us, well, that obviously can't be the sword of God because it's unjust and, you know, truth is marching on. And as the bearers of the truth, we're the bearers of God's sword. The problem is that God is saying all the swords belong to him, the ones wielded by whoever's hand. And here it's specifically speaking to those under persecution. The sword that's coming against you is God's sword in order to teach you. This is something that the civil rights activists struggled with in a correct way because they said, What is it about Christianity that it wants us, black people, us African Americans, to be submissive because we're supposed to listen to the gospel? What about the white people who supposedly brought this to us and gave it to us? The white people are using this gospel in order to put us in this position. But this is the difficult teaching that judges both the white and the African American. Both are under God's judgment and both must be submissive. But if we are submissive to that teaching, then the other one who is submitting to this teaching, our fellow servant, is our brother. We as human beings must see ourselves as the recipients of God's judgment. If you deny God, that sword is against you in the hand of God. And this is what we must understand, but that goes for anyone. There is no human being that is allowed to say, I am carrying the sword of God, therefore I'm not under judgment. Therefore I am carrying out judgment. I am the judge. You aren't allowed to go that way. The problem is morality and
0: ethics, because the philosopher wants to say that's an evil act, and what the prophets are saying is, with all due respect, if it's the hand of the Lord, it's righteous, irrespective of your system of ethics. What we learned from functionality in Scripture takes it one step further, that the very same thing that you want to classify as good or evil can function as positive or negative, as good or evil. In fact, the very same thing for two different people can function differently. So if I wield a sword, for me it functions as sin, but when I wield it against you, it functions as the right hand of God. The problem in American history is that repeatedly people have taken Scripture in translation without much self-reflection and without a serious examination of the original text. They have taken Scripture and said, ah, Scripture talks about slaves submitting to their masters. Oh, I guess that means that God endorses the master when, in fact, there is no text that is more forceful in its critique of patriarchy than Scripture. But at the same time, it co-opts patriarchy because it understands that if you allow the oppressed to emasculate the patriarch, they become worse than the first example of cruelty. Scripture understands, as you pointed out, Richard, that everyone is wicked. That's the genius of Chrysostom's Paschal Sermon. It's not just that he understands the importance of grace and making room for those who come at the 11th hour. It's that he understands that everything will fail unless the rich and the poor and the heedless and the sober hold fellowship together. That's the power of biblical functionality with respect to judgment and violence. And of course, here comes that prophetic twist in verse 35 and 36. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Of course, we discussed this earlier in the prophecy of Micah. If you reject God's instruction, If you follow after false rulers, if you don't listen to his precepts and walk according to his commandments in your own household, you will experience division and separation and cruelty, alienation, all the things that we're experiencing now in the United States, you will experience if you turn your back on God's teaching.
1: And this teaching gets so corrupted. I mean, I heard the story of a boy whose mother believed that the boy was gay. The mother drove the boy out to the forest, stood him up against a tree, held a shotgun to his head, and said, if I find out that you're doing something with that boy, this is the tree I'm going to kill you against. This mother believed that she trusted Jesus more than she loved her own son. But here's the problem. Just like I said a moment ago, she also thought that she was wielding the sword of God's judgment. You don't use it as a way to oppress. You are not allowed to use it to force others. The only division that's caused is when one of your own household decides to leave the teaching. That's the division in that they leave. They cause that division because they reject God's wisdom and God's judgment. But you remain under God's wisdom and God's judgment in the same way that When Jesus tells his disciples, you go to a town and you teach them, and if they're not interested in hearing and no one's worth your time, move on to another town. It's worth your time to go teach at a different place. But you're not allowed to use the sword to say, I'm here to deliver the teaching and the judgment of God, which is exactly what the conquistadors did when they came to the new world. They said, we bring the judgment of God on you, convert, or we're going to kill you. And this is what we did to them.
0: But here's the genius of Scripture in that very moment you were describing between this poor young man and his crazy mother, frankly, she was, in that moment, taking the side of Caesar, taking the side of her tribe and the purity of her tribe, however she interpreted whatever was motivating her nonsense. So for her, it was this crazy act of abuse. But for him, in that moment, it was a moment of grace and an opportunity to bear witness to the cross that's how scripture emasculates the abusive mother in that scenario it is so important to understand the functionality of violence and judgment in scripture he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And we must, we must contextualize this in the biblical story. We cannot do what people do in the modern church and blather on about how difficult their parents were and how they had to leave them behind to become Christian. This is nonsense. If your parents are difficult, God is commanding you to honor them. How dare you use verse 37 to justify your rebellion? Verse 37 is about the scriptural critique of tribe and nation. The sin in Micah of the rulers was that they put their interests first before God's instruction because they do what everyone does, call it nationalism, call it tribalism, call it America first. It's all the same lie because life is not possible if you put yourself first. And in Micah, because they put themselves, the nation, and the tribe first, they turned their own people into a stew. And you and I in the past have contrasted this people soup with the proposition of scripture that our king would offer himself as food for the faithful instead of consuming them. So your example is apropos, because this woman was worried about her family, and its purity, and its correctness, which is a betrayal. And it goes further, because in Scripture, this critique of mother and father is a critique of the borders we create around our tribe. Because here in Matthew, it is Jew and Greek, it is black and white, it is believer and non-believer who are invited to fellowship in God's tent.
1: And this challenge, like you said, Father, against the tribe, against the clan, is the penultimate challenge that Scripture is trying to teach you to go against your own biology and to follow His teaching and to remember His story when your own life, when your own existence is in jeopardy. So the penultimate step is your own relatives where all of your biology is connected to the ones who raised you, the ones who birthed you, and also the ones you birthed and those who you raised. All of your biology screams out that these are the most important things, that these are the ones you follow no matter what. When it comes to following what your parents teach and following what God teaches, you follow what God teaches. If your parents happen to be in agreement with what God is teaching, Thank God it's going to be easier for you. But if your parents are teaching you something besides what scripture is teaching, you thank God because now you have an opportunity to be a testimony to them who are teaching the wrong thing. Either way, you follow what God is teaching because God is the one who freed you from Egypt, as it says in the first commandment. But later on in the commandments, you honor your father and your mother. You love and you respect God as the one who holds the entire household in his hand. And you honor your mother and father. You're never allowed to reject them. You are only allowed to be a testimony to them. If they reject you and they leave, you can't force them to come back. But you're not allowed to stop being a testimony.
0: And now we come, Richard, in the final two verses to the conclusion, the point that Matthew is driving us toward. This movement away from nation first, tribe first, America first, to the defeat and the failure of the cross. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. When you put family before the broader community, of your fellow human beings, when you put nation and borders before fellowship with the foreigner, whom we are commanded in Leviticus to treat as a citizen. All this blathering on about the constitution and borders that goes on and on and on among Christians is blasphemous because it rejects the Lord's Torah. You were strangers in the land of Egypt. You must therefore call the foreigner a citizen The stranger in your midst is a brother and a sister. But if you're trying to put yourself first, you're going to turn the stranger into a component of the people soup that you're manufacturing in Micah. And the truth of the matter is that if you choose that route and you reject the cross, which is your death for the sake of the foreigner, if you reject that, not only will you persecute the foreigner, but you will be heaping coals upon yourself and upon the community you're supposedly trying to protect. You will be setting a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And ultimately, in your quest to fight the foreigner, you will find yourself an enemy of the people in your own household. So it's the cross, which to your human ears sounds like the loss of everything, That is the only way to find everything and to find life.
1: I was so saddened when I read last week a tweet from a Christian talking about people who believe in taking care of immigrants rather than their own fellow citizens. And it broke my heart because for the Christian, there is, when it comes to the United States government, the United States Constitution, the Bible does not weigh in on who is a citizen and who is not, who is legal and who is illegal. The Bible doesn't occupy itself with that you only have the biblical commandment to take care of the foreigner the ger the bible says you're supposed to take care of your fellow citizen and the foreigner in your midst as a brother it purposely blurs the distinction between the two now when it comes to the cross it even goes further because like you were saying a moment ago you know going against the urge the biological urge to take care of tribe and nation Here it says, take up your cross. And I say this every time I mention this verse. When we read this, we always think it means do something hard. That's what it means to take up your cross. Oh, I have this hard thing I have to do. I have to bear my cross, right? That's how we use it. Because we forget the original context. In the Roman Empire, if you were carrying a cross, you're carrying your cross. It was because you had already been arrested, convicted, and tried, and you were on your final death march. Your lifespan was between here and the top of that hill. That's how long you were going to live. What do you care about when you can literally see the end of your life coming? Do you think about your savings, your 401k, your children's college fund? You don't worry about these things. You only worry about those people to whom you were cruel and who you were not able to love as much as you should. So forget that you've got a life beyond this day which you're not promised anyway, but remember that you are about to die. So do the right thing because there's only moments to spare. And this goes back to the very beginning of chapter 10. You got to run, you got to keep teaching, and you got to get to as many towns and villages of Israel as possible. Get this teaching out because you are not guaranteed another day. Do not try to take care of your own life because your life is at The end of god's sword anyway so just keep teaching just keep preaching make sure this teaching gets out and do not tarry for a minute even under persecution
0: at this hour at this very moment as we speak as we sit comfortably in our chairs discussing the gospel of matthew there are children who have been separated from their families rounded up and put into detention camps They're being denied basic toiletries. They're being left to sleep in their own feces on cold cement floors with a poor excuse for any kind of blanket or covering. And I'm not being sentimental. I'm not being emotional. I'm not being hyperbolic. I'm not exaggerating. This is happening right now. And our community, collectively, lacks the moral depth to speak with any authority about what's happening. There is no consensus in this society about this problem, and that is bad news. That means that we have failed. Something is broken, and it's not acceptable. And I am not talking politics. And any Christian who can't accept the crisis and the failure of allowing this to happen, has rejected the cross of Christ. Because when that boy who is gay is staring down the barrel of a gun in his mother's hands, when an immigrant child is abandoned to such horrid conditions, when someone is dying of thirst in the desert and our laws make it illegal to give them something to drink, If we, as a people, cannot see Christ in these scenarios, there's no hope for us. And the judgment of God is coming. And as it says in the baptismal text, he will come and he will not tarry. And there will be an accounting. So to the extent that any of you take the Gospel of Matthew seriously, please preach it, live it, And make it known to anyone who will listen. Allow your conscience to feel the burden of the cruelty of our tyranny and the dangerous path that we are walking down right now in this country. God bless you and keep you through his instruction. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father.